0: We are Harvard Ventures, and this is The Bottom Line, a podcast about entrepreneurship, innovation, and everything in between. I'm Virginia, and today we have special guest Professor Greg Mankiw in the studio. Professor Mankiw is currently the Robert M. Barron Professor of Economics at Harvard University, where he's been an economics professor since 1987. Between 2003 to 2005, Professor Mankiw left Harvard to serve as the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors for President George W. Bush. Professor Mankiw is a world-renowned economist, known for his best-selling economics textbooks, one which has sold over 2 million copies, and since 2007 has written a monthly business column for The New York Times. Professor Mankiw's research includes work on financial markets, monetary and fiscal policy, and much more. He graduated with a summa cum laude degree in economics from Princeton and has a PhD in economics from MIT. Let's get right into The Bottom Line. During your time as a college student, you studied Milton Friedman, one of the most influential economists of the 20th century. He authored one of your favorite books called Capitalism and Freedom. Why does the book resonate with you and how can free markets benefit entrepreneurs?
1: When I started college, I didn't actually know I was gonna become an economist. I was thinking I'd go into the math or sciences. Um, and I sort of gravitated toward social science and started reading broadly in college. And I, I not done a lot of reading social sciences before, and I found myself very attracted to what I think of as the um, classical liberals, and I don't even mean them the modern sense of liberals. I meant I mean it's sort of the 19th century sense. So I mean, in a philosophy class, I remember reading uh, John Stuart Mill's *On Liberty*, and then in economics class, I read Milton Friedman's *Capitalism and Freedom*. Uh, and it really, I found it compelling both as a theory of how economic policy should work, but really a theory of how society should work. You know, John Stuart Mill wrote you know, 150 years ago, but a lot of the stuff he said in On Liberty is, is very much related to the debates we've had today about you know, what, what, what are the limits of free speech? And um, John Stuart Mill had a very broad view of, of freedom. So he actually thought that a society that, that gave people a lot of personal freedom uh, was the best way uh, to, to make progress, even if people are gonna say things that you don't agree with and are factually wrong. Um, that the best way to uncover things that are false is by people talking about them openly. And, and Milton Friedman's book, Capitalism and Freedom, was really applying that sort of classical liberalism to economic issues. And I found that um, also a very compelling book. A book I still assign, by the way, in my freshman seminar at Harvard. Um, it's uh, often of this second book I assign. The first book is a book about the history of economic thought called The Worldly Philosophers. And then we read Milton Friedman. And I don't agree with everything Friedman says at all. I think Friedman's a little too extreme for me, but I think he makes um, the, his arguments very clearly uh, and, uh, and crisply. And I remember I had one student once, I think there's a, quite a left-wing student. I think he, he might have even called himself a socialist. And he, he said, I, something I thought was very insightful, he said he really liked the Friedman book. He said, he said this is the point of you have to figure out how to argue against. And I thought it was just a great uh, reaction because he understood the, the power of the, arguments. And he didn't agree agree with them, but he had to figure out how to respond to them forcefully. That's why I sort of love teaching that book uh, in freshman seminars today, even though the book's now, I guess, 60 years old.
0: Right. And philosophy is definitely at the heart of every economic policy that's ever created. So understanding philosophers such as John Stuart Mill in terms of either arguing for or against his vision uh, is really important. So venture capital funds are made up of portfolio companies that fail about 90% of the time. However, at least 10% of the portfolio is expected to yield such high returns that the investors and startup founders often make insurmountable amounts of money. Do you believe that startups have the power to disprove the pie fallacy?
1: I mean, The, the pie fallacy means there's a, the idea a fixed pie and I think you just gotta how to slice it. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure you can disprove it, but I think very few economists believe that there's sort of a fixed economic pie and that it can't sort of grow or shrink. And The only issue is how, is how to slice it. And you look around the world, you see pr- prosperous societies where everyone is prosperous, uh, or you know, many people are prosperous, like the United States. Not everyone, but many people are prosperous. And you see societies like in sub-Saharan Africa where you know, almost no one is prosperous. Uh, and so the idea that there's a fixed pie that, that, that's immutable to policies and institutions, I think, is just clearly um, uh, not right. Uh, so I don't think any economist really believes the, the, the fix the fixed fix pie fallacy. Although I don't think simply pointing out venture capital funds will necessarily um, convince a, a skeptic. But I think what we have is a very dynamic economy where we've seen sort of great innovations expand the economic pie. Um, you know, everybody walks around with an with an iPhone. Uh, that was due to Steve Jobs' brilliance, um, and he got fabulously wealthy doing that. But he actually made all of our lives better doing it too. Uh, so uh, not I don't think I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that the fixed pie fallacy is is indeed a fallacy,
0: very interesting. And, like you said, I think that Steve Jobs has definitely proved that the pie fallacy is a fallacy. So on your blog, you explain how Larry Summers once said that government is a crappy venture capitalist, and you say that he was right. Can you explain why?
1: Yeah, I think that the uh, that quote came up in the context of the Obama administration is thinking about how to fund particular green technologies, and uh, I think what Larry was saying was that you know yes there'll be certain startups that are going to do amazing things in the space in, in the sort of uh, climate change space, but in, the federal government's probably not the best person to sort of figure out which which ventures which to to to, uh, to promote. It's largely because the typical bureaucrat who works, works for government is not, does not have the training of a venture capitalists. I mean, venture capitalists have a particular skill set, which I do not have, by the way, uh, but they have a particular skill set to try to identify uh, the, um, the, the next profitable, successful venture. Um, they have a lot of skin in the game. They, 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 they're betting a lot of their own money and they, they're going to make, as you said earlier, they're going to get very wealthy if, if, they, if they're successful. So they have big incentives to get these things right. The government bureaucrats uh, don't have that same set of incentives. They don't have the same set of skills. So it's not going to be a surprise if when, when the government starts picking particular ventures to fund, they're going to make mistakes. So, you know, the famous case in the Obama administration was Solyndra, which, you know, lost many hundreds of millions of dollars to the federal government when the federal government gave them loan guarantees to promote um, particular solar technology. And then within a year or two, the, the company went bankrupt. Um, whenever you do venture capital there's going to be uh, a lot a lot of risk and a lot of, a lot of failures. but the, the, the federal government' is just not the best institution to, to figure out uh, you know, what, where, where capital should be going. Well the other, the other thing I' to say about that is you know if you're a venture capitalist and you do a bad job, you're no longer a venture capitalist. you stop being a venture capitalist because you can go out of business people say he, he can't pick good ventures. Whereas if you're, if you're the federal government t- taking taxpayer dollars, and you lose a bunch of taxpayer dollars, well, you're still the federal government. You don't, you don't get pushed out of, out of uh, business by another federal government. There's no competition. Or as venture capitalists are constantly competing with live venture capitalists to be successful. So I think um, the, the government, which is a, as a self-perpetuating institution, is really not a place that's going to sort of reward success and, and, and punish failure in the way that, uh, say, capital markets will.
0: Right. And I think that's a really great perspective in terms of the startup founder side, where the VC investors are fighting over investments from the greatest startups. So if you're a hot startup, you're really in a great position. But if you're the VC investor, you're trying to hunt them down. So from 2003 to 2005, you were the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors for President George W. Bush. How are you able to directly see your counsel to the president and effect on the United States economy? And what was your typical day like in the executive office of the president?
1: Well, I worked harder in those two years working at the White House than I did in any two years of my life. It's it's a much harder job than being a professor uh, at Harvard. Um, The the day at the White House started uh, with a 7.30 a.m. senior staff meeting held at the uh, Roosevelt Room, which is the conference room right next to the Oval Office. Um, And I'll say, you know, 7.30 a.m., at Harvard, I've never had anyone call a meeting in my, you know, 30 years at Harvard, it was ever said, let's have a meeting at 7.30 a.m. Nobody nobody gets up that early at Harvard. Uh, whereas at, at the White House, everybody was there at 7.30 a.m. And they'd already read the newspapers. So they had to get, to, they'd to get in at 6.30 a.m. to read the papers. So they were ready for the meeting at 7.30 a.m. So it's, it, and days are starting early, they're very long, and they're a lot of hard work. Um, but I, I learned, so much and had such a great time that I would, I, I'm really glad I spent those two years uh, in policy. Uh, the, the Council of Economic Advisors has no operational uh, role in the sense that we don't make any decisions. We're purely advisory. And so our power, influence anything, is only as good as our ability to convince people that our advice is, is worth paying attention to. Um, I got to see the president two, three times a week. Um, uh, but even before, even before I saw the president on some issue, I would get together on a regular basis pretty much a daily basis with other um uh, economic principles and by that i mean so the head of economically relevant agencies so the uh, secretary of treasury uh, the secretary of commerce the secretary of labor the um the head of the national economic council so i would see these people um uh, every day and uh, our job was really to come up with a set of uh, recommendations which we, which we would present jointly to the president sometimes we would disagree and we'd give the president a menu and explain the pros and cons and why while you have different positions, it's usually better for the president, since, since the president's always busy, to uh, come up with a consensus recommendation before we reach his desk, so he doesn't have to spend a lot of time arbitrating. Uh, and when I was there, actually, the team worked very well. The head of the National Economic Council was a guy named Steve Friedman. He's the pro- person I worked most closely with. Uh, he and I were had never, never known each other before I joined the White House, and made very different career paths. I'd been a professor my whole life. He had been uh, head of Goldman Sachs, uh, and then came from the Wall Street world. Uh, but he and I got to, got along together wonderfully and we became close friends and uh, it was really a great collaboration I think between him and me and of course the other uh, this, the cabinet secretaries um, and I think the team worked extremely well during, during that time.
0: That's amazing and like you said it was more of an advisory role so I wanted to ask you while working with President George W. Bush, what was the decision making process like in terms of crafting economic policy? And how did you lead your staff in preparing the economic report of the president?
1: It was a, it was a very organized policy process in the Bush administration. Um, uh, issues would come up like this if so some bill might be coming up in the Hill, and then we'd, we'd have some meetings saying, oh, here's a bill that's coming up that we have to have a position on. You know, are we in favor? Are we against it? Uh, and then the principals would talk about that briefly and then we'd go to our staffs and we'd, we'd, we'd charge our staffs to start investigating. I mean have, different staffs have different comparative advantages. So my staff did the economic analysis. Somebody else the st- somebody else's staff would be looking into the legislative uh, politics of it all. Um, and then we'd, our staff would report to us uh, our, our, the principals ahead of those particular offices and then we'd get to, from what we learned from our staffs, we then get together to sort of accumulate the information, try to figure out, how this, all this information uh, comes together, and then we would sort of come up with a set of recommendations for the president, and then we'd eventually have a meeting with the president. So it was, it was really sort of, I think very structured, um, and uh, as it, and therefore I thought it worked reasonably well in terms of aggregating information from lots of different sources. My sense of the current occupant of uh, the Oval Office has a little more chaotic uh, way of running things. Um, I think. George W. Bush sort of viewed it from a very corporate standpoint of having a, a, a regimented structure, which I personally thought worked well. Um, but it, every president does things a little differently.
0: Just as President George W. Bush had a lot of structure in the White House and it proved to be effective, I think that can be applied to any startup founder who's building out infrastructure in their new company. It's definitely important for building the company out in the future. So as a world renowned economist, I have to ask you about your investing strategies. You described your investment portfolio as 60 percent stocks, 40 percent bonds, mostly in low cost index funds. Can you tell us a little bit about your investing strategies and markets that interest you the most?
1: Sure. You know, I, I I think the most important lesson to learn about investing, most important, which is the, the one lesson that economics is absolutely certain about is the value of diversification. Uh, and diversification is one of the few free lunches in. in uh, in investing, which means that you can, you know, you can reduce your risk without long return just by spreading your, uh, your, your eggs around, not keeping them all, all in one basket. And, uh, so that I believe in passionately. And so I really try to achieve maximal diversification of owning stocks and bonds, foreign and domestic, you know, a little bit, really a little bit of, a little bit of everything. The second thing is that, that the second sort of starting point is that the average investor has to own the market portfolio because that is that is the market. It's the average investor. Okay, so I think the average investor has owning the market portfolio. And then the question is, and what the, average, the market portfolio is roughly an equal amount of stocks and bonds, and roughly an equal amount of domestic and foreign. Um, uh, and then the question is, okay, why are you different from the mar- from the average investor? I mean, what makes you special that you shouldn't do what the average investor is doing? There could be good reasons. There could be like, oh, you're more um, averse to risk or less averse to risk than the average investor, in which case you might want to tilt um, toward or, or from stocks rather than bonds. Um, you might say you have special insight. Um, I know there are people in the world who have special insight. Warren Buffett seems to have special insight. So if he doesn't own the market portfolio. He uses a special insight to invest where he thinks he should. Um, as a professor sitting at Harvard, I don't think I have particularly special insight. So that's why I feel pretty comfortable owning um, uh, the market. Portfolio. I, I will say I, I I occasionally try to think I have special insight. Um, so for example, I have a a friend here, uh, and I, one of my neighbors here in Nantucket is a very s- smart hedge fund manager named Cliff Asnes. He Runs a group called AQR Capital uh, Management. Cliff's a very very smart guy. I've been super impressed by him. So a few years ago, I said, well, I'm just gonna put a link into one of Cliff's funds because I think I have some special insight. That I to know that Cliff is really smart and he'll do well for me. And so if you, I put a very small, I do want to make 1% of my portfolio into one of Cliff's funds thinking, oh, here's my, this is my special insight that Cliff's a really smart guy. And so I did deviate from holding the market portfolio. I should say by the last few years have not been good for Cliff. <laughs> so I'm not sure I've actually did better off having done that, but I still think Cliff's a smart guy, so I still have the money there. Uh, we'll see how, whether it pays off in the long term.
0: Wow, it's really amazing and definitely an interesting perspective um, from an economist like yourself. Um, So thank you so much, Professor Mankiw. I'm passing off the rest of the questions to Jonathan.
2: Hi, Professor Mankiw. So I wanted to start off with coronavirus. After five years of the federal budget deficit growing by $1 trillion a year, in the months between April and June, COVID forced Washington to borrow $1 trillion per month. Congress is currently discussing the next relief bill, likely somewhere in the range of $1 to $2 trillion. Which will only increase the budget deficit further. How do you believe the United States government can address the increasing budget deficit, and what will the long term repercussions of having trillions of dollars in debt increase exponentially at such a fast pace? How will this affect business owners in the long run?
1: Well, you're absolutely right that the, the deficit situation is really quite extraordinary. I mean, the, the budget deficit right now looks like it's the largest since World War II. Um, and the level of debt, which is sort of accumulated past borrowing as a percentage of GDP, which is the, the normal way to normalize it, um, is the, it's going to be the highest level we, we've ever experienced in U S history by the time this is over. Um, so we have a very, very high level of debt. Having said that, I think it's perfectly appropriate to be running big budget deficits. Now the standard explanation for, um, uh, running. Well, when you should run budget deficits is in times of crises, and the crises typically are wars or deep economic downturns. And what we're experiencing now is a, deep, is a very deep economic downturn. Uh, and so it's perfectly appropriate to be running up this debt. If this is over, we need to then think about how to, how to slowly pay this off. It doesn't need to be done all at once, but it shouldn't be done all at once, but over a period of many years, letting, letting the uh, debt to GDP ratio gradually fall, as it did in the 30 years after World War II, um is, is is the right course the question is how are we going to do that my guess is we're going to probably need a, another revenue source that is increase increase tax tax revenue probably not from the tools we have but probably from other uh, other policy tools the two that i've talked about some of my writings are of a carbon tax we worried about climate change and a carbon tax is one way to raise revenue and um, deal with climate change um, And also a value-added tax i mean europe has uh many european countries use a value-added tax to raise revenue um, and it's actually a relatively efficient way to raise revenue so if you really want to raise revenue without distorting the economy a value-added tax um, is is a reasonably good way good way to do that my guess is at some point the united states is going to consider something similar
2: speaking of a carbon tax you have long been an advocate for such a tax It seems that both sides of the aisle are open to the idea of a carbon tax, but a key obstacle in implementing such a tax is convincing the general population as taxes are rather unpopular. If you're writing an excerpt for economics for dummies, how would you explain your tax on your take on the carbon tax and specifically how it is more of a carbon dividend?
1: Sure, yeah, the plan that I've signed up with is a group called the Climate Leadership Council that um, put out a plan sometimes referred to as the Baker-Schultz plans, is two of the more famous advocates for them were um, Jim Baker and George Schultz, both former secretaries of state. Um, and the, the basic idea is to put a tax on carbon. And, uh, the, and the reason for putting the tax on carbon is to provide people the right incentives to change their behavior, to, to, to act in a more climate-friendly way. Uh, so to live closer to work, drive more fuel-efficient cars, Maybe, uh, maybe live in more efficient uh, energy efficient houses and so on. Uh, but then to take all the revenue from this carbon tax and rebate it lump sum to people. It's almost like a small universal basic income. Well, it's too small. To, the amount of revenue raised is too small to be would be called a UBI. But it's sort of along that way, right? you get a regular dividend from the government based on the carbon uh, tax revenue uh, collected. Under that plan, most people actually end up better off because you know, the dividend would more than pay for the carbon tax that you're paying. Very wealthy people have big houses and drive, private, drive fuel inefficient cars and maybe have private planes. They'd be paying more of the carbon tax. But the whole thing would be progressive and provide the right, right set of incentives. Well, you said something very important, which is that it's, the issue is not convincing Congress. It's the issue of convincing the general public about this. And I think that is exactly right. I think if you, I've talked to members of Congress. I think they all understand the logic of it. Not all of them are completely convinced about climate change. I think some people on the far right who are still skeptics. I think most congressmen understand that climate change is real. Most of them understand the logic of a carbon tax is the right solution, but it's very politically unpopular. So the question is how to make it more politically unpopular. The dividend aspect, if understood, I think should make it more politically popular. But I think this is the kind of thing that could, people could change their mind rapidly. You know, when I gave a lecture at at, at, when I saw at Act 10 about carbon taxes, I ended with this picture of the White House. The picture of the White House was with the White House um, lit up at night in the multicolored rainbow flag. And this was during the Obama administration. And this was right after the Supreme Court case that made same sex marriage uh, the law of the land. And I said, and I sort of explained that what, that, what this picture was. And I said, what is remarkable about this picture? This was, the remarkable thing about this picture was that the uh, Obama administration was celebrating same sex marriage even though President Obama had twice ran for president opposed the same-sex marriage. And why is it all of a sudden they did this about face? Well, it seems like the American is their mind, they polling on this issue completely as soon as the American people were convinced our, our so-called leaders were ready to follow. And that's exactly what the Obama administration did. And I think the same thing is true with the carbon tax. I think if the general public started worrying about cl- climate change and started realizing that a carbon tax is the best solution to it, provide people the right incentives, I actually think our elected leaders would quickly follow suit.
2: So would you say the best way to convince people is by writing economic papers or maybe something else? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, yeah, I spend my time doing all sorts of different things as an academic. Um, you know, I write re- research papers for other um, professors, uh, which is what most professors do is they write papers for each other. Uh, but I also spend some of my time writing for broader audiences you know, I have, a, I have two uh, undergraduate textbooks. I also have a regular gig for the New York Times or about once a month, every month or two, I, I, I write an op-ed for them. So that's my attempt to try to reach out to the general public. And I've written several times about the virtues of carbon taxes. So I think that's useful. I think econ- professors need to spend more time in, uh, engaging with the general public and not just only engaging with each other. Um, on the issue of carbon taxes, I think professors are convinced among themselves. I don't there's any debate among economists that this is the right policy. So I think what we really need to do is reach out to the general public. I'm not sure professors are necessarily the best people to convince the general public. We need uh, other other thought leaders as well, but we can certainly do our part.
2: As with most things, it'll definitely take a collective effort to get anything done. I wanna switch back to discussing the Fed. The Fed has recently reacted to the economic crisis with an unprecedented speed and with regards to the scope of action taken. How has the reaction from the Fed this time been different from 2008 and how do you think the current administration has handled monetary policy?
1: Well, as far as the administration goes, I think um, the president spends much too much of his time talking about the Fed. I think he should appoint good people, and he's appointed some good people, by the way. I think j Powell was a good appointment, even though President Trump seems to have changed his mind on him. Um, I think j Powell was was a reasonable appointment. Um, But I think the the White House should, should not be commenting on Fed policy. I actually think the Fed is one of our best-functioning institutions in government in the sense that it was set up as sort of a quasi-independent uh, institution in, in 1914. And it's generally done a good job over time. Not far from perfect, I think you can think of some big mistakes, but it's generally functioned well with good people doing the best they can, for dealing with hard problems, pretty much insulated from politics. Um, so I think this time they've, um, they've they've done a pretty good job. The Fed's challenge now is not as big as it was in 2008, in the sense that this this crisis is really a medical crisis. It's not a financial crisis, so it, it intrinsically involves the Fed less. The Fed has done what it can to make sure it does the uh, medical crisis doesn't turn into a financial crisis. So they're doing a, they're doing a good job of doing that. I think 2008 they had a much harder job than than they did today. Um, looking back at 2008, I think there were some mistakes. There's a wonderful book by economist named Larry Ball, a friend of mine, at Johns Hopkins called uh, the Fed and Lehman Brothers. And um, Ball basically makes the argument that the Fed sort of dropped the ball with Lehman, that, that they they didn't appreciate that the collapse of Lehman would have was going to lead to uh, such a tremendous crisis uh, in, in a matter of days. They thought, they, they thought the market would handle it um, more readily than they did. Uh, and and it, it, interestingly, the t- people there at the time, like Ben Bernanke, have, have not been willing to admit that, that was a mistake. Um, but I think Larry Wall makes a very good case that sort of Bern- Bernanke blew it on that one. But after, after they realized that mistake, then the Fed said, uh oh, we better get our act together. And then the Fed became very activist subsequent to that. And then I think the Fed did a very good job subsequently uh, after that. Uh, but it was, a, it, it was a very hard uh situation for them some people blame them for not anticipating it not seeing it coming i think it's very hard to do i think most economic crises aren't by their nature unanticipated so i don't really i don't give them much blame for not anticipating it uh, but i think there's certain events they might have handled better uh, but overall i give them a sort of a pretty good grade b plus uh, not, not an a but a, a b plus for their but i'm a hard grader i should say uh, i give them a b plus for their handling of the 2008 crisis
2: I think it's definitely important to know how the difference between this crisis in 2008 is one was obviously a medical crisis and one was more of a financial one.
1: Yeah, I think if, 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 you know, if we get a vaccine, I think if we do get it in the next six months, which seems possible at this point, I think the, the economy could come back quite quickly. So um, this could be a, not only a very deep, but a very brief recession. If the medical crisis drags on, then this could drag on as, as well. So I, I, I'm, I'm, at this point, basically this is what I'm reading of the, of the um, medical technology is thinking that we'll, in a year from now will be a much better situation with regard to the virus uh, and the economy will, um, we'll, can, can potentially recover quite quickly. So I think this could actually, could actually be a, a more rapid than usual recovery.
2: I agree. I, I think we're even getting a bit of that with the market improving recently. I want to hone in on interest rates for a minute. Interest rates are currently near zero and the Fed has stated through forward guidance that interest rates will likely remain near zero for the foreseeable future. With such low interest rates, it's significantly easier for startups to borrow money and expand quickly. Do you think there'll be a surge in startups post COVID? And if so, what industries do you see these startups in?
1: You see, if I, if I knew that, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> I would not make myself a lot of money, but I just told you earlier that I really don't, I'm not, I, I just told the market portfolio. That's because I'm, as, I'm humble enough to know my own, know my own ignorance. So I don't, uh, so I don't know what, what the what the nature of the best industries are. You you do point out a very interesting thing, which is that interest rates are very low, and this has been a, this is a long-term issue. If you look back basically since 1980, we've had a 40-year decline in interest rates. Uh, part of that is that we have declining inflation since that period, but part of it's not is, is real interest rates. Inflation-adjusted interest rates have come down over the past 40 years, and we don't completely know why that is. There's a variety of explanations out there. Um, one explanation is, is just that there's a l- large savings glut in the rest of the world, especially coming from Asia, that's just growing fast and saving a lot of money, and as a result, there's a lot of funds available for investment around the world. That's driving down uh, world interest rates. That doesn't mean it's less expensive for everybody to borrow. Everybody from homeowners to um, uh, to to you know buying a house to to, to, to new new businesses um, starting up. Uh, what economists are debating—I don't think we have an answer to this—is this, this is a permanent thing? Are we are we are we in for now a low real interest rates forever, which seems to be what the market's betting? If you look at sort of 30-year inflation-adjusted interest rates, they're very low, um, uh, or or could this reverse itself? And uh, I don't know—I I don't know the answer to that—but um, I think that's sort of one of the big open questions going forward: is to what extent are is, is is our low interest rates. Um, Something that will go on forever. If, and that's true, by the way. It does provide opportunities for businesses because you can borrow cheaply, but it also provides a challenge for people like saving for retirement. It means you have to save more for retirement to fund whatever you wanted uh, in, in your golden years. So as with oil prices, when the price changes, rates, there, there, are, there are winners and losers. Similar with mm-hmm. low interest rates, there are winners and losers.
2: We'd like to end by asking entrepreneur Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? I think
1: my most controversial paper I've ever written is one called defending the 1% and I think that there's a uh, I wrote that paper because I think there's a sense in a lot of circles in the United States that there's something pernicious about wealthy people um, and they think of people getting uh, wealthy through some sinister means and um, and they're not really paying their fair share in taxes, and they're just screwing the rest of us. And all the rest of us are all suffering because the one percent are so wealthy. Um, and I, don't, I basically don't think that's right. I mean, there's certainly bad wealthy people. You know, Bernie Madoff comes to mind, right? If you, if you get wealthy by stealing from somebody else or defrauding somebody else, you're a bad person. That's a bit, you're a bad person whether you stole a little bit or stole a lot. So whether you're wealthy or poor, if you're if you're a thief, if you're if you're committing fraud, you're a bad person. So I completely agree with that. But I don't think most wealthy people are wealthy by virtue of being like Bernie Madoff. I think most wealthy people become wealthy by creating something that benefits uh, the the rest of the world, and they reap some of the gains from what they've created. But the rest of the world benefits even more. So you know, if, you know, J.K. Rowling. Uh, you probably all, you, we've all read Harry Potter books. I read the, I read all, all all seven volumes out loud to my children when they were growing up. Um, She's a billionaire, right? But my guess is she's created a lot, much more than a billion dollars worth of value to the rest of the world. All these kids who enjoyed reading uh, by virtue of, of uh, reading the Harry Potter books. We talked earlier about Steve Jobs who became fabulously wealthy, but so did we all become better off by virtue of him creating uh, the iPhone. You know, I think that's, especially in a capitalist economy, this is probably less true by the way than some of the kleptocratic Foreign economies, but if you live basically in a in a free market economy like the United States, where we tend people we tend to have a pretty good uh, system of uh, justice and the rule of law. The best way to get rich in in the, in the United States um, is to create something of value uh, that a lot of people want to buy, and that might, that's making the world a better place. You know, Vladimir Putin's rich too. I don't think he created something of value. He probably stole from the Russian people. So I, the, I wouldn't apply this to every country, but in the United States, the best way to get rich is to is to um, create something of value, and then pay your taxes on it. I mean, mo- mo- people always say, "Oh, the rich aren't paying their fair share." Sure, that's, there's some people who manage to avoid taxes, some people even evade taxes. Donald Trump seems to be one of them. Uh, but uh, but most rich people pay their fair share in taxes. If you look at sort of the uh, the average tax rates for the top one percent, they pay about a third of their income in taxes. So yes, I think there are certain rich people who who need to be demonized, but I think that's that's the minority. I think most rich people are creating value for the world uh, and then and paying their fair share.
0: And that's the bottom line. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to find us online at harvardventures.org. If you're a company or individual interested in working with us, email us at hello at harvardventures.org and follow us on Instagram at harvard underscore ventures. Tune in next week for another episode of The Bottom Line.